Stadium. Hi, I'm Paul Ellard. Welcome to Our Queen, Our Mother, the Graces of the Blessed Virgin Mary. In our sessions, we will be exploring the topic of the Blessed Virgin Mary and why she is important to the Christian faith. With each talk, we will try and open up and explain in simple terms the Catholic Church's teaching on the Blessed Virgin Mary. So welcome to the program and let us begin with a prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Loving God, we thank and praise you for the countless blessings you pour on us every day. Thank you, Lord, for the gift of Mary. Thank you, Lord, for revealing to us the person of Mary and how a special creation she is in your eyes. And so, dear Mother, we ask you to pray for us this day to send your spouse, the Holy Spirit, to enlighten our hearts and our minds that we may come to know and love you more and thereby come to know and love and serve your Son. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with you. Blessed are you among women and blessed is the fruit of your womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Immaculate Heart of Mary, Pray for us. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, today we want to discover more of the person of Mary, but specifically through church doctrine. What the church teaches as defined dogma about Mary. But first we need to ask the question, what exactly is dogma? Sometimes we can have a negative concept of what dogma is. But dogma is the perfection of truth. Dogma gives light, clarity and truth to that which is already true. When the church declares a dogma, it's not making something into a truth or declaring something to, to be true. It's already taking something that is already true and declaring it and celebrating in that truth, if you like. It takes something which is already true and raises it to a level of perfection. So then, a dogma is an infallible statement. It's an unchangeable statement. It's a declaration of the Church. Although it comes from the Holy Father, it is a statement on behalf of the whole Church. It's not a statement or a personal opinion of just a Pope. So as such, it cannot be changed even by another Pope. So dogmas are not made lightly. Dogmas are the foundation, if you like, of our faith. And in regards to Mary, we have four dogmas. And it's probably fair enough to say that in the near future we'll have a fifth and a final dogma. But we'll, um, we'll talk about that separately. We'll take the dogmas in the order of which they were defined. Sometimes there's a good argument for looking at them in another order, but for the sake of simplicity, we'll take them in the order in which they were defined. So the first dogma of Mary is declares that Mary is the mother of God. And this was declared in the Council of Ephesus 
way back in 431. So you can see right from the early days, Mary has always been an integral part of the Christian faith. I might add here that the first prayer that we have recorded to Mary's intercession can be dated in 250 AD. 250. Like that's way before the New Testament was finalized in the councils of uh, Hippo and Carthage in 393 and 419. So we're right back in the very early days and it's a beautiful prayer and I came from a Marist school and we used to say this prayer every day. The title is called Under Your Protection and it goes like this. We fly to your patronage, O Holy Mother of God. Despise not our prayers in our necessities, but deliver us from all danger, O glorious and blessed Virgin. So it's a lovely prayer, but it goes back to 250 AD. Amazing. So then, back to our dogma. Council of Ephesus 431. And the council declared the following. If anyone does not confess that the Emmanuel in truth is God, and that on this account the Holy Virgin is the Mother of God, inasmuch as she gave birth to the Word of God made flesh, let him be anathema. So in the Greek, the expression is theotokos, which translates to God-bearer. It's worth looking at how this came about. You know, we're always saying that Mary leads us to Jesus and helps us understand who Jesus is. Well, this dogma really, the background to this dogma really highlights how important Mary is and how she does help us to know her son more. At that time, there was the heresy put forward by Nestorius, and he refused to call Mary mother of God, not because of any Marian dimension of it, but because of a Christological error. In other words, Nestorius erroneously divided the one person of Jesus Christ into two separate persons. And thus Mary would only be mother only to the human person of Jesus, not the mother of God. But the Council of Ephesus declared that Jesus is one divine person with two natures, one divine nature and one human nature and that the two natures are inseparably united in the one and only divine person of Jesus. In other words, it was a dispute about who Jesus was. Was Jesus truly human? Was Jesus truly divine? And how do we bring this together and make sense of it in the person of Jesus? So put simply, the Council of Ephesus simply asked the question, who was it? that Mary gave birth to. Was it a human person? Yes. Was it a divine person? Yes. Mary gave birth to a human person named Jesus who had a divine nature as well as a human nature. Mary then and this dogma helped define clearly who Jesus was. We accept it today as, as norm but in those early days, it was difficult forming an understanding of exactly and precisely who Jesus was. Now it's important here to clarify that Mary gave Jesus his human nature 
not his divine nature. Because his divine nature always existed beyond time and existed from all eternity. Galatians 4.4 4 says, When in the fullness of time God sent his Son born of a woman. Mary gave Jesus a human nature identical to her own in the same way that each of our mothers gave us a human nature. But since Jesus' human nature is inseparably united to his divine nature in the one person of Christ, we correctly say that Mary gave birth to a son who is truly God and through Mary truly man. So in short, we can say that Mary gave flesh to the word made flesh and is rightly proclaimed Mother of God. Dr. Mark Maravalli, in his wonderful book, Introduction to Mary, gives the beautiful example and says that with St. Elizabeth, she is the mother of St. John the Baptist. That is, she is the mother of a complete person, not just of St. John's body. <laughs> right? She's the mother of John the Baptist, the person. And this is a true statement, even though we know that St. Elizabeth did not give John the Baptist his soul, which was created and infused directly by God. Motherhood, then, refers to the gift of like nature, with the fruit of motherhood always including the entire person. So we can't say that Mary just gave birth to the human nature of Jesus. It's a nonsense statement. Some people get really confused about this. We used to have a person in our rosary after Mass who wouldn't say, Holy Mary, Mother of God. They would say, Mother of Jesus. I had a relative and a friend who also thought like this. It's wrong thinking. We just have to pull back a little bit. When we say, Mother of God, we're not trying to redefine the meaning of the words. God is the ultimate source of everything. In that sense, obviously God can't have a mother because then God would be coming from something else in the divine spiritual sense. When we use the term mother of God, we are in fact also pointing to a new reality. Again, we're reinforcing what the council at Ephesus said that Jesus is man and he is divine. We're pointing to a new reality. Mary is the mother of God. In other words, the human person that Mary gave birth to is in fact God. So that title, Mother of God, focuses straight on to who Jesus is. The second dogma we want to look at in regards to Mary is the declaration that Mary is a perpetual virgin. This was defined in the Lateral Council in 649, again, very early in the days of Christianity. And this declaration is as follows. The blessed, ever-virginal and immaculate Mary conceived without seed by the Holy Spirit and without loss of her integrity brought him forth and after his birth, preserved her virginity inviolate. So there's three aspects then to this declaration. That Mary was a virgin before, during, and after the birth of Jesus. 
Let's look at each one separately. Mary was a virgin before the birth of Jesus. And I think that's pretty clear. All Christians today would universally accept that truth. We only have to look at scripture in the prophecy of Isaiah in 7.14. Behold, a virgin shall conceive. And then in the Gospel of St. Luke, when the angel Gabriel was sent by God to a virgin, and the virgin's name was Mary, in Luke 1.27. So that's pretty much accepted, that Mary was a virgin before the birth. Now what about this idea that Mary was a virgin through the birth? Well, it's always been the teaching of the church fathers that Jesus' birth was a miraculous birth and that it caused no injury to Mary's physical integrity. St. Augustine was very clear on this. He said, It is not right that he who came to heal corruption should by his advent violate integrity. St. Augustine wrote about this. Pope St. Leo the Great uh, wrote about this. And later Thomas Aquinas, the church's greatest theologian, would say this of Christ's miraculous birth. Painlessly and without change in Mary's virgin body, her son emerged from the tabernacle of her spotless womb as he was later to emerge from the tomb without moving the stone or breaking the seal of Pilate. So as light passes through glass without harming it, so too did Jesus pass through the womb of Mary without the opening of Mary's womb and without any physical harm to the tabernacle of the unborn Christ. St. Thomas talks about how Jesus emerged from the tomb. We recall where Jesus came into the upper room where the doors were locked. And he wasn't just a spirit because he ate with them. When God becomes man, we have to expect a few special things to accompany it. And then the third one, that Mary is a virgin after the birth of Jesus. As you know, there are a lot of modern-day Christian groups who tend not to believe this. They think that Jesus had brothers and sisters. And we'll look at this more in detail when we look at apologetics of Mary. But just quickly to say that the term brethren of Jesus in the New Testament would refer to his cousins, his near relatives, and even possibly his close followers and disciples. Because Christians today still call each other brothers and sisters in the Lord. There is in fact in the Hebrew and in the Greek no distinct word for cousin. So the word brothers is often used for a cousin or a close relative. And we see this used elsewhere in sacred scripture between Lot and Abraham and Jacob and Laban. But we'll come back to those at another time and go more into the apologetics of it. But it's clear that the church has always accepted that Mary was a virgin after the birth. The church fathers have talked about this. The Second Vatican Council made us a statement about this, refers to the Mary as the glorious ever virgin Mary. Why was it appropriate that Mary should remain virginal after the birth of our Lord? Certainly it is in no way intended to infer that marital relations between people in sanctifying grace is not a good and meritorious act. But rather there are several positive theological reasons why Mary should have remained and did remain a virgin after the birth of Christ. St. Thomas Aquinas explains that Jesus as God was the only begotten Son of the Father. 
and an only begotten of such unfathomable dignity as the Son of God. So when Jesus became man, he likewise deserved to be an only begotten son of his human mother. The singular nature refers to Christ's special dignity as the God-man. And also the virginal womb of Mary is the shrine of the Holy Spirit. And a human conception following the miraculous conception by the Holy Spirit would not respect its sacred and unique seed of precedence. Again, this is taken from Dr. Mark Merivale's book, Introduction to Mary. And St. Thomas adds that it would be unthinkable that Mary, after her miraculous virginal conception and her miraculous virginal birth, would forfeit her God-protected gift of virginity after the birth of Jesus. And furthermore, Mary was to be, for all ages, the perfect example of Christian discipleship in a complete gift of self to God as a model of the church, which is both a virgin and mother. So Mary's virginity would need to be preserved in imitation of the virginity of Jesus himself and the perfect example to later Christians of holy virginity as the highest objective gift of self to God. So the third dogma then is that Mary was immaculately conceived. This dogma was defined by Pope Pius IX in 1854. And the papal bull reads as follows. We declare, pronounce and define that the doctrine which holds that the most blessed Virgin Mary at the first instance of her conception was preserved immune from all stain of sin by a singular grace and privilege of the omnipotent God in view of the merits of Jesus Christ the saviour of the human race, was revealed by God and must firmly and constantly be believed by all the faithful. I did forget too to mention that with dogmas we are obliged to believe them. Private revelation, things like that, we can believe or we cannot believe. We are free to choose. But when it comes to dogmas, it's necessary for our salvation that we believe the church dogmas. So dogmas then have a special importance in that regard. So the scriptural basis for the Immaculate Conception is Genesis 3.15. And we talked quite a lot about this text in the topic when we covered Mary in scripture. And Genesis 3.15 says this is where God comes in after the fall of Adam and Eve. And he turns to Satan and he says... I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. You will strike at his heel. He will crush your head. What's going on here? God the Father is speaking. I will put an enmity. Enmity is a strong word. It's a war. I will put an enmity, a war between you, Satan, and the woman between your offspring and her offspring. You will strike at his heel, but he will crush your head. So God predicts a war between the offspring of the woman and Satan. In fact, it's a war between the woman and her offspring and Satan and his offspring. Who's the offspring of Satan? those who do not live by God's commandments. 
as scripture reveals in the book of Revelations. So there is a war going on. There is an exchange of blows. Satan will strike at the heel of the offspring of the woman, but he will crush the head of Satan. How does this help us understand the doctrine of the Immaculate Conception? If the one born of the woman is to crush the head of Satan, then how can, for even one moment, that woman be under the power of Satan? This would create a ludicrous and illogical situation where Satan had already won the battle before it began. Mary became pregnant by the Holy Spirit, as Scripture tells us. How can the divinity unite itself with sin? That would be like God embracing Satan. Jesus makes this very clear in Luke 11.17 where he explains that it is impossible even for Satan to have a household divided against itself and not collapse. The dogma of the Immaculate Conception highlights a privilege of Mary in fact, it stresses the dignity and holiness required to become Mother of God. The privilege of the Immaculate Conception is the source and basis for Mary's all holiness as Mother of God. In a sense, it's an essential part of being Mother of God. And more specifically, the dogma of the Immaculate Conception states that the most blessed Virgin Mary from the first moment of her conception, by a singular grace and privilege from Almighty God, and in view of the merits of Jesus Christ, was kept free of every stain of original sin. And again, this was not new. We go back um, to the Church Fathers, we see constantly in their writings that the Church understood that Mary was, in fact, free of original sin. So an interesting question is, was Mary saved? Yes, she was saved. In fact, Mary was saved not because she sinned. Mary was saved from sinning, which is a greater form of salvation. I heard the analogy once, if someone falls into the pit and then someone comes and pulls them out, they are indeed a saviour. But if someone comes and prevents the person from falling into the pit in the first place, that's a greater type of salvation. And that's the analogy that we can apply to Mary. So when Mary says in the Magnificent, my soul proclaims the greatness of the Lord and refers to her Lord as Saviour, she can indeed say that Jesus is her Saviour, even though she has never sinned and she was free of original sin. And we have to see these gifts to Mary as great gifts to us. Because it's, this is where the power of Mary comes in the fact that God has given her so many gifts that she in turn can not only be a model disciple and inspire us and guide us and be an example to follow, but she can intercede for us. She can pray for us with incredible power in her prayers. So we now look at the fourth Marian dogma, and that's the Assumption of Mary, that declares that Mary was bodily assumed into heaven. This dogma was defined by Pope Pius XII in 1950. So the bull 
of the dogma reads as follows. Mary, Immaculate Mother of God, ever virgin, after finishing the course of her life on earth, was taken up in body and soul to heavenly glory. In the bull proclaimed by Pope Pius XII, he referred to five sources supporting the dogma of the Assumption. First of all, they cited the unanimous consensus of the Church's teaching magisterium. On May 1946, Pope Pius XII sent a letter to the bishops of the world asking two questions. One, could the Assumption be defined as an article of faith? And two, would they and their flock desire such a definition? So in other words, they were asking the first question, is it definable? And the second is asking, would you like it defined? It's a question of desire. They're two totally separate questions. So the letter was answered by 1,232 bishops. And of those, 1,210 answered yes. So it was more than 99% unanimous. And it's also interesting to note that what was led up to the definition from the years 1849 to 1950 that some 8 million petitions were sent by priests, bishops and the faithful around the world asking the Holy See for this definition. So we have in our tradition of dogmas petitioning from the faithful and the bishops to the Holy Father to declare these dogmas. Now today we kind of look at petitioning in a different light. We see it as political lobbying. It's a reflection of what the people believe because we have an understanding in our church that as the church prays and as the church lives, so it reflects the Holy Spirit. It's not the same thing as majority rules, which we tend to hang on to because we come from we live in democratic societies, different from that, but it's reflecting the mind of the church and the mind of the Holy Spirit. So it's the Holy Father's job then, in union with the bishops, to discern this movement and verify that it truly is a movement of the Holy Spirit. I mention this because it helps us understand any future dogma that might be proclaimed and the methods are very similar. So the second source is sacred scripture. The scripture support also draws on Genesis 3.15 where Mary is foreshadowed as sharing the identical absolute victory of her son over Satan. So therefore it implies bodily resurrection. St. Paul states throughout his letters in various places that the consequences of Satan's seeds are two sin and death. We see that in Romans 5, 8 and 1 Corinthians 15, 24 and Hebrews 2. By death, St. Paul means material corruption. Therefore, Mary's triumphs over both sin and death in virtue of her immaculate conception. She triumphs over sin through a preservation of her sin through her conception and over death through her assumption. And there's also a very strong passage from Revelations 12.1. The woman clothed with the sun, which has a heavenly vision of Mary in heaven with a crown on her head and the twelve stars under her feet. So if she has a head, she has a feet, she has a body. 
She is bodily in heaven. And then the third source was through sacred tradition. Many of the church fathers defended the assumption, like St. Andrew of Crete. And of course, we have also in Scripture um, two rather mysterious passages where there is reference to the event of graves being opened and many of the bodies of the saints coming alive. And while this can't be applied immediately to Mary, it certainly talks about the reality of bodies rising. So from the 13th century onwards, we have a theological unity in both the Eastern and Western churches for the Assumption of Mary. The fourth source is from sacred liturgy. And we find that the Assumption can be found in the liturgy right back to the 6th century in Syria and Egypt. And then the fifth source is the connection between the Assumption and other essential Catholic truths and specifically the two Marian dogmas that Mary is the mother of God and of her Immaculate Conception. So it's argued that with the Assumption, it would be very appropriate that Christ would honour his mother as only a divine son could, and therefore he preserved her from the corruption of the grave and at the same time granting her an extraordinarily and bodily glorification in heaven. So the first connection is the appropriateness of Jesus raising his mother and the second argument is the connection between the Assumption and the Immaculate Conception. And the Immaculate Conception is essentially linked to the Assumption, said Pope Pius, because the Assumption is the unnatural effect of the Immaculate Conception. If a body is free from sin and is victorious over sin, then the natural effect is that the body is assumed into heaven, a share in the resurrection of Christ. The Catechism tells us that the Assumption is the eschatological sign of hope for all the Church, meaning that the Mother's bodily victory is a sign of our eventual bodily victory. And as always, what is true about Christ is essentially true about His Mother and, thirdly, of the Church. So it's the ascension of Jesus which reflects the assumption of Mary which reflects our own bodily resurrection. And so another interesting question in this topic is did Mary die? Now there were those that believed that at the end of Mary's earthly life she did experience a separation of her body and soul typically for three days after which time her body and soul were reunited in heaven. And this is basically argued due to the principle of perfect discipleship that Mary follows Jesus. And second, there are those who hold that Mary didn't experience temporarily separation of soul and body, but simply at the end of her life she was taken up to heaven. The Church does not teach us one way or the other, clearly. But both of these agree that death never infers corruption of the body due to sin. Pope Pius didn't say anything in the definition because the revelation on the topic is not yet complete, so he just started at the end of her life. Today the view is more accepted is that Mary did die and that it was not due to sin and that she did experience a separation of her body and soul for a limited time and was reunited in heaven. So we are a bit short of time, but I just wanted to quickly cover a possible new fifth dogma. This movement has been underway now for 
quite a long time, nearly a hundred years, and that is that Mary is co-redemptrix, mediatrix and advocate. Now it's quite a mouthful, all of that. What does it mean? So Mary as co-redemptrix means that Mary suffered with Jesus. And the importance here is the word co. We need to underline the word co. Co means with. Mary suffered with Jesus. She suffered incredible pain. The other week we covered the sorrows of Mary. And from that we saw just how much Mary suffered. And when you take into account that in all this suffering, she is sinless, conceived without original sin. Well, why is she suffering? She's suffering for us. So she unites her suffering with Christ. And it has an infinite value. We can say that Mary's contribution through her suffering has cooperated with Christ in the salvation of mankind. Now it's important we stress this, that Mary is dependent upon and subordinate to Jesus. So we're not saying Mary is the saviour. Jesus is the saviour. Jesus is the one who made the sacrifice and died. But Mary's suffering was not trivial and was not insignificant. And then we talk about Mary as mediatrix. She is the mediator. Now again, we have our belief that there is only one unique mediator between God and man, and that's the person of Jesus Christ. And we have that from the words of St. Paul himself in 1 Timothy 2.15. But the perfect mediation of Jesus Christ does not prevent other mediators who are subordinate and secondary to Jesus. In fact, it actually provides <laughs> that very perfect mediation of Christ does in fact provide for others to be able to be mediators who are subordinate to and secondary to Jesus. So the perfect mediation of Jesus allows for others to participate in the one and unique mediation of our Lord. We think nothing of asking our friends to pray for us. In other words, to mediate to God on our behalf. And especially if we know they're a particularly holy person we feel even drawn, please, you pray for us. Imagine Mary's role as mediator from her position as being the mother of God, as being free from sin. And of course we see this in scripture at the wedding of Cana in John chapter 2, where the first miracle of Jesus is brought about by the intercession of his mother as mediator. And then the final concept is mediatrix. Mediatrix means the dispenser of all graces. So the dogma presents that Mary dispenses the graces of Jesus as her role as co-redemptrix and as her role of mother of the church because of her special participation in the meriting of those graces of the redemption. By Mary distributing the sanctifying grace she is able to fulfill her role as spiritual mother, since she spiritually nourishes the faithful of Christ's body in the order of grace. And for true motherhood, it goes beyond birthing of children to include their nourishing, their growth and their proper formation. And so we see that with the mother of Jesus in the way that she distributes those graces to the world. 
She knows the heart of Jesus so well. She knows God's perfect will. Notice the divine consistency in Mary's role in the order of grace as designated by God's perfect will. Mary gives birth to the source of all graces in Jesus Christ. With this birth of the head of grace, she also gives spiritual birth to the body mystically united with the head in grace. She participates with her son in meriting grace that redeems the world on Calvary. And then finally from heaven, Mary distributes the graces of redemption to grant to each open heart of the human family the saving supernatural life of our Lord. And as Vatican II ascribes to her, Mary is truly our mother in the order of grace. Now again, this proposed dogma is deeply rooted in sacred tradition and already we've had many situations where popes have taught these concepts. They're not new, they're already truths that the church accepts and believes. The question is about celebrating in these truths and raising them to the level of perfection. But just as an overview, the current four dogmas that we have deal with Mary's relationship with Jesus or look at who Mary is herself. This proposed new fifth dogma deals with her relationship to humanity, between Mary's relationship between you and I. In other words, what she does now in heaven. The ultimate purpose of her being mother of God, immaculately conceived and assumed into heaven. The ultimate purpose of her perpetual virginity is ultimately for our gain, for our salvation. This is the way God has willed it. This is the way God has given us a beautiful heavenly mother. And so millions and millions of petitions, over a thousand petitions from bishops and cardinals have been presented to the Holy See asking for this dogma to be declared. And the great Archbishop Fulton Sheen, he was of the opinion that it's not a matter of if, it's just a matter of when. And so we wait in God's timing and we wait upon the Holy Spirit and we pray. We'll talk more about this when we look at the apparitions of Our Lady of All Nations which occurred in Amsterdam. So we'll leave it there. Thank you for being with us today. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the wonderful gift you give us in a Heavenly Mother. Help us to appreciate the gifts you are giving us and why you give us these. Help us to treasure them and dear Jesus, help us to love your mother the way you love her. All glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit as it was in the beginning, is now and ever shall be, world without end. radio.org.au